0: so much. I always fix my mic during the prayer, but when you're preaching, God allows it. He gives you like a one pass. You can be doing something else during prayer. Um, Okay, it's great to be with you. What a day. here we are. I've not preached yet since we've been meeting in the round, so I'm excited about getting some more points on the Fitbit, walking around in different spots. I don't have a Fitbit. That was a joke. That was a bit that I'm doing, a joke. Um, There's a few more sprinkled throughout the message, so get ready for them. And... Um, and we're in Nehemiah chapter 3, part 2. Savvy, good to see you, man. It's good to see you. It's going very well, thank you. Um, and the Holy Spirit has entered the room officially. We can start. That's the sound he makes. Um, so we're in Nehemiah chapter 3, but we're doing it again. You might be thinking to yourself, I went to church last week. I heard Nehemiah 3, I'm back, they're preaching it again, that means you can go, you don't have to stay through the sermon, you've already checked that box. No, we're going through it this time, last week we looked at it from the perspective of leadership, Nehemiah's leadership, and from the perspective, perspective of the gates and some of the themes like interwoven throughout the text, and Todd just brought that out beautifully. And today what we're going to talk about is this chapter uh, from the perspective of I want to say from below, from the people, from the folks involved, shoulder to shoulder, family to family. I wrote a blurb. How many of you read the blurb just out of curiosity? You don't have to be polite in raising your hand. Like, have you ever read a blurb before? A few of you. Good, good. Well, I was really proud of this one. I really loved it. You know, sometimes you write something, you're like, I like this. So it's a one time use only, so I'm going to read it to you. And it goes like this God's online too. Right? Picture it. Hey, God's online too. He says he wants to talk to you about a job. All right, so let yourself into this imaginary scenario for a moment. God is calling you for a job. What would you be thinking? What joys, excitements, or fears would be racing through your mind as you sipped some water, cleared your throat, and took a deep breath and picked up line two? Now he's talking to you about a project for which you have, in your estimation, exactly zero credentials. It's a job, furthermore, that puts you on the front lines addressing one of the most massive crises that's faced your people in generations. Now take this situation, scroll back a couple millennia, lose the phone part, and you have Nehemiah chapter 3. This Sunday, well, here we are, so I don't need to say that. This Sunday, we're going to talk about what happened when God called on a roster of seemingly unremarkable people for a remarkable project. Shoulder to shoulder, family beside family, ancient Israel arose and built. God's calling you. He's online too. two. He's got a job. It sounds like a terrible setup for a, a sitcom or something, but when you think about w- this this project that we 're talking about in Nehemiah, this building of uh, the desolated, decimated walls around Jerusalem, it can sound a little bit from our long, long distance like what 's the big deal? Who cares like it 's just some walls and and it can seem like, is this just like a kingly sort of flexing his muscles. Nehemiah wants to, wants to build something cool that will go down as a legacy for himself, right? Is it, is it just this kind of small time fix? Is it something they could have done without? Like, what is all involved? Not just, not just the project itself, the manpower, the logistics, the materials, all that would have to go into it, all the orchestration, but what's in it, like, emotionally, in the sort of the, the, the soul of this project? What is going on? And I wanted to, before we uh, go any further in Nehemiah 3, take a step back and look at the scope of this project. You'll see the first point I kind of did with the points this week. I did like two titles for each point. I couldn't think of one, and so I did two. Um, and this one I titled, The Extraordinary Project or a Really Big, Really Demoralizing Real Problem. I want to let you in on the problem. I want to let you in on the existential, the experience of the people of Israel for a moment. Because I don't know about you, I grew up in Southern California. My whole life, 1981, it was a beautiful time to be alive, the 80s. Anyone know about the 80s? We love the 80s. And I have never experienced the places I love being decimated by a hostile, evil empire that has come in and just destroyed I've never experienced that. I've never seen something I love being just made into total shambles. And that's exactly what the people of Israel are facing here. And so Nehemiah's project is not just coming up and saying, like, I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to make Persia pay for it. No no one likes a Trump joke? Come on. I wrote that in there. I worked on that. Okay. Courtesy laugh for the Trump It was a nonpartisan joke, people. Okay? You don't know what I feel about things. <laughs> Instead, this was a project that was touching on the broken, most painful piece of this people in generations that they had ever faced. A, a national trauma, a community trauma, the likes of which surpasses anything in our recent memory. The closest thing I could think of would be like a 9 11, right? where you have this moment where the whole country is I just remember, staggering around, and we're all wondering, what, what's next? What does this mean? And there was this national sense of sorrow, even international sorrow. If you remember it, you could feel it. You could feel it. This, this was 9-11 times 100. This was the whole thing being destroyed. So I'm going to read some passages, and I don't know what the heck is going on with this mic, but it's really weird. I'm going to uh, read some passages, and I put some music to it because I want you to feel while I read it and I have my wife's phone because I left mine in the car and boom this comes from Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 and Nehemiah surveys the damage and I want you to enter in to the pain I want you to enter into the emotions of it I want you to enter in to the trauma of what is going on as we start this project and I'm going to read a couple snippets from Lamentations it's a a poetic lament and response of the house of Israel to the destruction of their world as far as they were concerned by the Babylonians in 586. So Nehemiah 2-4 through, uh, 2 through 4 says, Hanai, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish, Jewish remnant that survived the exile after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. I asked them also about Jerusalem, They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they're in great trouble, and they're in deep disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem, it's broken down. It's in shambles. It's gates. They've been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. Lamentations 1 through 5. How deserted lies the city. It was once so full of people. How like a widow is she who was once great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All of her friends have betrayed her. They've become her enemies After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion, the roads themselves mourn. No one comes to her appointed festivals. Her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her young women grieve. She's bitter in anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease and they laugh and they scoff. What can I liken you to, O oh virgin daughter Zion? How may I comfort you, O oh virgin daughter Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? Your wound is is as deep as the sea, who can heal you? I mean, this just gets you in for a moment into sort of the, the emotional epicenter of this project. It is so far beyond ornamentation or national... Uh, star atop the Christmas tree to make us shine a little bit brighter. This is looking at a people that are decimated, a project that's impossibly, impossibly big. I mean, have you ever seen projects or encountered something and you you develop a burden for it, but it just feels so heavy, like you can't carry that burden anymore. It's crushing you. The scope of it, perhaps, is so massive that you just can't think to get your, your mind around it, let alone your arms, heart, and life around it. I remember... Early on, in um, a number of years ago, going with Matt and Tara and Theo Windorf and and a few of our high schoolers to uh, to Skid Row, to the L.A. Mission, and we had a tour. We were given a tour by two individuals that had made it through their uh, restoration recovery program and were back in uh, working life and society. And these individuals had lived in Skid Row for a number of years, and they took us on this tour. I remember block after block after block of just thrown away human beings, of human suffering, of individuals that were so hopelessly bound by addiction or mental illness or a, a number of other active ingredients to this destruction, And when we learned more about the complexity of the problem of homelessness in Los Angeles, it wasn't just like my naivete. It was like, well, let's get them a sandwich and and a Capri Sun or something, and and let's help them out. And the reality was, this is not the deepest need. It's just food. There is such a deeper, deeper challenge. And I remember leaving, them. we all did. It wasn't one of those youth trips. You walk by going, praise Jesus. God's going to do something good. You walk away heavy almost troubled, feeling dark, like a sense of this problem is so, dis- dis- so terrible. Some of you that um, have been to the Martin home, we had, we had just great Christmases with the Martin home, these amazing men that are coming through out of long stents in uh, federal prison, long incarcerations that are coming out rebuilding their lives together in this home And I remember Joseph Hamilton talking to us about the crisis of mass incarceration in our country right now. The tens of thousands of lives that are spent behind bars. And as individuals get out, the recidivism rate is just incredible. And I remember hearing the details here and being so troubled and thinking the problem's so big. Who will stand up and do something? What can be done? Um, I'm a full time professor, as many of you know, and, and uh, with my students that come in to office hours or, or I'm in contact with through different means, uh, the levels of depression and anxiety right now in our country are at a crisis level, at an absolute crisis level. Many of you know this. Many of you are touched very personally by this. Many of you may even struggle in this, right? And you look at the, the, the problem and you go, who will bring help? Who will, who will help with this situation? Or what can be done? It's just so big. Marriage, brokenness, right? Like we, we all know it. All of us in relationships have experienced pain and brokenness. And it seems sometimes like we're careening from one broken relationship to another broken relationship. People are hungry for connection. Uh, when Bray and I first started learning about the, the foster care crisis in Los Angeles specifically... Like, did you know we have the second worst, and maybe at this point the first worst, foster care crisis in the nation? There are, are over 30,000 kids in care right now. Many of these kids will age out onto the streets. Many of the homeless population, indeed, or, and also individuals involved in gangs, have been in the foster care system. And when I heard that, I just cried, just broken. They're sort of like Nehemiah. You want to, how do I fix it? I'm sorry. There is no fixing this right now in this moment. Jamesy Wamesy isn't going to fix this. I can't, I can't get my abilities and resources together to make this problem go away. You just mourn and you lament and you say, Lord, it's too big. It's too impossible. I just want to bring the broken down walls home to you. Like this is the broken down walls, the biggest one I think for our church family that the River Church, our hearts beat for, our hearts break for, is the fact that there are so very many people that have been designed and created, as it says in our sacred scriptures, they have been created in the image of God for relationship with their creator and and one another, and this earth in beautiful harmony and connectedness. So many are living life alone. And we can have all the material accoutrements and all of the distractions we can create Empires for ourselves of entertainment or pleasure or small cap, lowercase p purpose and live utterly alone. And we see this and we all see it. And you look around and you go, Lord, the problem is too big. What can I do? It's like throwing a rock at a tank. What can I do, Lord? The beautiful thing comes as we move to point two. As we think about the, the size of the problem, the, the heartbreaking um, tectonic size of the problem and point two the profoundly unqualified that's what i've titled it the profoundly unqualified or in my favorite title this is the one i actually i like the best god bets on underdogs the beautiful thing about the size of the problem that we're dealing with right now is that god loves to bet on underdogs if god is a betting god I don't think he is. He knows too much. It's not gambling for him. It's like straight up outcomes. He has his hand in it. It's not ethical. But if God was a betting God, he would be betting on underdogs every single time. He's the guy that's sitting there, or the person that's sitting there picking the dodgeball team when kids like me that trip over our shoelaces and are awkward and knock kneed, as now I have such good knees, but back then I was so knock kneed. I mean, look at these knees, right? Come on. No, okay. Um, I, I would be picked last or second to last. It was me and this other kid that were kind of vying for who's not going to be last on the dodgeball team. God is sitting there going, all right, you, not me, kid. You're on my team. But wait, like all the big kids are here. No, I want you. Why? Because I love underdogs. It's just how God rules all the time. I mean, think of it. Salvation history, this big concept you'll hear us talking about a lot. The story of the scriptures, and it's a beautiful narrative, is a story of God reclaiming that which was utterly broken. God jumping into the black hole of human darkness, oppression, rebellion, and emptiness. Jumping into that black hole and bringing about solution. And he chooses to do it in a very interesting way, using people and using a family. Think about the person he chose, this guy named Abraham. Abraham. His name was originally Avram. It means exalted father. He says, I'm going to bring about the ultimate solution through your family line. And his, your, your name is exalted father. He did not have kids. Like that is so God to give him a name like that. And then he says, no, no, no. I got a better name for you. We're going to call you father of many. For you will be a father of many. And through you, blessing will come to all nations. Called him Avrahim, father of many. I don't have any kids. Yeah, because I'm God. I bet on underdogs all the time. And if you're smart, your money is going to go with God. He loves underdogs. Exodus chapter 20, the, the Ten Commandments. You've heard them, you've probably been told them several times, going up. But we always forget the most important line in the Ten Commandments, which is the first line. It says this, Genesis 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When God chooses a people to be his vehicle for blessing to all peoples, when he looks around at the lineup of nations, he doesn't go with the giant ancient Near Eastern people, Mesopotamian kingdoms, dominant powers, the Hittites. He doesn't go with Syrophoenician slick warriors. He doesn't go with Egypt, this giant juggernaut of an empire. He looks at a slave people. He chooses slaves and says, hey, slave people, slave nation, you're my people. I'm calling you as my people. Because why? Because God just loves to bet on an underdog. I can't stress that enough. It's littered throughout our entire sacred scriptures. Look at David. David versus Saul. Saul's head and shoulders above him. Super buff, super big, super tall. David's small, little guy. He's ruddy and handsome, though. He says that so many times. The Bible says it. Have you noticed that? Like David was ruddy and handsome, ruddy and handsome. I think he like had his hand in the editing of this, right? He's like, hey, can we say something about you know I don't know, ruddy handsomeness? Yeah, David, we said that a few paragraphs ago. And I just throw it in again just in case. All right, David, ruddy and handsome. But boy, he was not the person you choose to be your king. But God loves to bet on underdogs. He does it all the time. When you move to the New Testament, and I'm not going to read all these passages in any detail. But this letter to Philemon, this beautiful letter that Paul writes to a little house church, probably much smaller than this, maybe about, boom, about this size over here. And he writes to this house church, and he's writing them about an individual that in that society was considered a tool that could speak, was considered an animal that could walk upright. Indeed, this is how Romans thought of slaves in their empire. And about one-third of the empire would have been consisting, or one-quarter would have been slaves This individual, Onesimus, Paul says things like this about him. He has become so incredibly useful to me while I am in chains for the gospel. He is my very heart, verse 12. Verse 16, I am bringing him back to your community no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Paul, this movement is just getting off the ground. You really, you you need to think about personnel here. You want the best, the brightest, the best looking, well-educated, powerful people up front. And Paul says again and again, read 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. Here's what he says. I'll paraphrase it in real big theological language. God Bet on underdogs. Every single time, Monday, Wednesday, twice on Sunday, he bets on underdogs. He loves it. It's his thing. And so that's inspiring to me personally. When I think about the size of tasks and problems and challenges in my individual life, like the relationships I know, the little mini crises and the macro crises of our world, when I think about all these, how do I enter in? What could I do? What's the deal? Every single time god bets on underdogs. I just want to say um, to you as i 'm up here right now, sometimes you can look and say oh you you 're a pastor like of course like that 's your thing you 're a pastor you get out in front and you bring good news and you rally people around causes it 's just kind of your thing but i 'm not i'm just i 'm just this person sitting here or whatever sometimes that 's an easy thought I wanted to say real honestly, there has never been a true calling of God or a true project that God has put on my heart and, and launched me into that I've ever felt prepared or ready for. It's never happened. Every time, no matter how big or small, I'm always kind of thinking if I had just like one more year of mentorship, maybe I'd be ready for that. Or maybe one more degree. If I could just get one more degree, I'd be more competent in this area. And God, I just can't. I, I'm, I'm one foot off the merry go round here, God. I, I don't know if I could do it. When I was in junior high, um, ministry as an 18 year old i was just a volunteer that's easy enough drive the church van a little bit i could do that and the youth pastor had another got another job and they go, james do you want to be junior high pastor i'm like no i don't i have no background in this my prefrontal cortex isn't even fully formed yet you don't want to trust me with these kids i didn't know that at the time but i know that now right i felt totally undergunned for this and god's like i got you 20, at age 20, the high school pastor left. Everyone kept leaving. I don't know what was going on. But the high school pastor left, and they're like, hey, James, do you want to be the high school pastor? I'm 20 years old. Like, Matt Ingle is in my youth group. He's 18 years old. There's like two years difference. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, Lord. Why am I in this? Coming to the River Church as a church plant, I've been in established churches. You know, by that I mean, like, you know, churches with, like, insurance programs and dental, <laughs> things like that. And, like, we're meeting in a backyard and, and like, I can't do a church plant. That's scary. Like, will people show up? We ask that question almost every week. And guess what? People didn't show up sometimes. <laughs> there was one time I preached, like, it was me and Gary Hirschbergers looking each other in the eyes. <laughs> Gary, listen to this passage. Like, but God is like, God's like, I got you, and I'm journeying with you, and I'm bringing you along. So the beautiful thing I want to emphasize in all of these is, like, the scope of the problem, it is huge, and we do not have to minimize it. To think God just might be catapulting us into a solution side of things. We can look at the ugliness of the whole thing and say, my heart breaks. I'm burdened, Lord. And we can be real with our lament about that. At the same time as then when you read Nehemiah, which we read last week in detail. I just, one, one detail that I love is, I just lost my Nehemiah, so I'm just going to say it from memory. Uh, when it's describing the people on the wall, and Tommy, you're right, it's a boring chapter. I mean, it is a boring chapter, but the Bible, it's helpful if you're having trouble falling asleep, you can get into that. But the Bible's more than that, right? It's got a lot of good things. Uh, it's not just entertainment. It's, it's so much more, as we all know and Tommy knows, but it's a boring chapter. But the boring chapter has these cool little, little vignettes in it where you'll have a perfumer working on the wall. A perfumer. Like, what am I doing? You can imagine him on the wall. Like, I'm a perfumer. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm working on this segment of the wall. And then there's a jeweler over here. Like, imagine your jeweler right now working on the wall. Like, can you picture it? You see in your head? It's like overcharging you for stuff. Next to Levites and priests who are ritual experts, they're not builders. Like, this is the picture of the Motley crew working on the walls that Nehemiah has been inspired by God to jump into the problem and arise and build together. God loves underdogs, period. And the beautiful thing is, and and I'm I'm so stoked to have Denise sharing here with us, and we'll turn on the handheld mic if possible, Um, is that God doesn't just call us into something big and then leave us there. Okay, I got you in there. Huge problem. Have fun. God meets us there, and Denise is going to talk about that. So come on up, Denise. let that handheld mics work in there. should be.
1: So, James' third point is um, that he is lavished upon us and that we're more than we appear. Because all those people that worked on the wall were not usual suspects, and how and the way they were enlisted and the role they played. It was it was surprising that a jeweler was building. It was surprising that all types of people worked on this wall. And so this is just the last point that I'm going to talk about. And um, I wanted to open with a story. A few years ago, it's probably been about 10 years ago, 12, my father passed away. And one of the sweet memories um, when he passed away is we went down to Palm Desert which was one of his homes, and there was a jigsaw puzzle on the table. And it was all there, just like he left it. He loved jigsaw puzzles. And every piece was there, but one piece was missing. We're just like, shoot, I can't believe he did the whole puzzle, but there's one piece that's missing. And we wanted to frame it, because there's this process you can do with jigsaw puzzles, and then, you know, keep it up, always remembering my dad. And But this one piece, it just, it just wasn't there. So it, it, a couple months later when we went down again, uh, one of the kids found the piece on the floor, this little piece. And this little piece was the piece that completed the puzzle. And so we got to put that in and then shellac the puzzle and do that process and frame it. So we always have that as a reminder of my dad. And it's interesting because as Nehemiah leads, and then we go to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 12, we see Paul do the same thing Nehemiah did, and he talks about the role that each and every one of us play and how important it is. A lot of us feel like this little piece doesn't matter. I don't have anything to contribute to the puzzle. Just one little piece, big deal. You know, I'm not important. What role do I play with this little piece? I don't even have color in the piece. There's no color distinction. That's the first thing you look at when you do jigsaw puzzles. But let me show you what Paul says. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 12, just like James said, if you look at verse 7, we're going to begin in verse 7. He says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit For the common good. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is what James is trying to emphasize in Nehemiah 3 when we look at all the different people building the wall. Paul doesn't say, Some of you have been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He says, Each one of you, every single chair, in this auditorium, if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you look on the verses chapter in uh, chapter 12, 1 to 7, he makes the distinction between someone who knows Jesus as Lord and someone who doesn't know Jesus as Lord. Because you can't say Jesus isn't Lord and have this manifestation of the Spirit. But if you do say Jesus is your Lord, I put my faith in Jesus. I put my faith in what he's done on the cross for me. And his bloodline is now in me. Remember we've talked about bloodline before? Once Jesus is Lord of our life, then the manifestation of the Spirit is upon us. And that each one of us has the power of the Holy Spirit living in us and through us. Does that make sense? And what does it mean when we say the manifestation of the Spirit? If you look that word up, it means we show off the Spirit. We show off the the glory of God. So basically, Paul's saying each one of you becomes a show-off for the glory of God. Just like on the wall, Todd, Todd described all the gates and all the people building the different gates and all the different trades they had and what each gate meant. Paul's saying in our body, in the body of Christ, each one has a manifestation of the Spirit in us and through us, if Jesus is our Lord, and what we do is we show off the glory of God. So Dave Gepner shows it off different than I do. Abby shows it off different than I do. Chase, John, all of you, we each show a different display of the glory of God. And then he says, it's not just for our sake. We're not It's not designed so that we're just a show off of God's glory, but it's for, do you see the last part of the verse? I know it by heart. For the common good. So he's saying your gift is, is for the common good of all of us. When I see your gift, Pat, I see more of God's glory. When I see your gift, Michelle, I see more of God's glory. And we, it all kind of works together to show a greater picture of who God is. And Paul, then he goes on to say in the rest of chapter 12, you've got to read chapter 12 and you're not going to believe it next week, We get to take a gift test. We have a whole team of people that have developed a gift test for each of us to take on our phone and for each of us to discover more about how we've been manifested with the Spirit in our gifts so that we can live that out with each other. But until next week, if you want to read ahead, look in 1 Corinthians 12 because he said, you may have the gift of a head... But that's not more important than the gift of a toe. And you might have the gift of a toe, but if you don't know an ear, you're not going to be able to hear. And how every single, that each one of you is so, so important. We um, understood this and lived this out this week in, in living color. On Monday, our eight-week-old grandson was admitted to Torrance Memorial and they thought he had a rotated, malrotated intestine, and so he was taken in an ambulance to Miller's in Long Beach, and he had surgery on Tuesday. And Tuesday, when that surgeon came out, you know, and it was rough, and all of you, many of you, were playing roles in our lives to keep us standing when we were scared and desperate. I mean, to see your daughter with her baby and your son-in-law suffer and I don't know what's worse the baby's condition your kid's condition but it was all bad but the surgeon comes out and he goes August is going to be okay he did really well in the surgery he's going to be okay we took his intestines uh, we took his appendix out and we rotated his intestines and put them back in and it's all good in 20 minutes you're going to be in recovery with that little baby, and you know, we're really excited. He had this big, huge smile on his face. So we all cried, and we thanked the Lord. We got in a big circle and thanked the Lord, and we were just like, oh, gosh. Thank you, God. And a lot of details leading up to that. And then, like, 15 minutes went by, a half hour, an hour, an hour and 15, and there was no parents going back in recovery. So, I've been through enough surgeries to know that's not a good sign. And so about an hour and a half later, the nurse came out and she said, I'm going to need mom and dad to go back um, and talk to the anesthesiologist. So we're all kind of like, okay. And they went back and they found out that when he came out of surgery, he couldn't breathe on his own when they took the ventilator out. So they had to put the ventilator back in and he was going to need to be on a ventilator for a while till his system kind of caught up. So at that point, for us, the anesthesiologist was our guy. It wasn't the surgeon. It was the anesthesiologist. And then from there, he went to PICU, and there were a number of nurses, and there were actually like two or three doctors and probably five nurses when they took the ventilator out, all gathered around probably like just in case anything happened, But everybody played a role. Everybody. And it wasn't about the surgeon now. It wasn't about even the anesthesiologist. It wasn't about just the nurses that took the ventilator out. Now it was about his nursing care. Then it was about the transporter that transferred all the breast milk from the whole week. The transporter that moves you from rooms had left all the breast milk out and it had melted and it was ruined. So it was like, I don't know, 40 bags of breast milk. And that was devastating. Because that, transpo- that transporter mattered, didn't he? If he didn't do his job, the baby didn't have the breast milk to keep for, you know, the coming weeks and months. What's my point? As James said, and everybody said every week, everyone on the wall matters. Every single person on the wall matters. In our story, every single person, like Paul said, each and every one of you, whether it's in this medical setting, but what I'm talking about, Paul says, is the church. Each and every one of you matter. And he's saying, when I... When God manifests his spirit upon you, you are equipped for what you matter about. What God stirred in your heart, like Bray and James, I mean, they are a living example. God stirred in their heart about foster care. Who knows how they're going to house them? Who knows how they're going to care for them? Who knows how that's going to affect their other children? But that doesn't matter because God put it in them. God's Spirit is going to provide for what they need to live out that call you get that you think you can't do. And that, as they live out that, we all get to witness the common good, don't we, of that faith. And so I just want to close with two questions. One is as Paul mentions and as Nehemiah exhorts the people, what is your little piece? I want you to start thinking about your little piece and we're going to be diving into it more next week. But when you think about like what you're burdened about and maybe what God wants you to step into and live out, start thinking about your little piece. Even at your young age, you can kind of recognize what God stirs you up about. Then think about who in your life do you need to reach out to by text or email or just a word and say, you know what, you matter. Because when you live out your peace, I see God through you. And it might be a person who gives you a flower it might be a person that just says, you're going to make it. This week I had a, a woman who is in a corporate world who could never be by my side um, send text in the hospital, and they just happened to come in right when we needed them. And I saw her at the beach this morning, and she, she's just like, I don't know my peace anymore because God has her in a, a setting and circumstances that aren't familiar to her. But she, I said, you have your peace, girl. Her words, her little texts that's all she did when we were in the hospital is she just sent me texts. Not long, just a few words, but they were words that held us up. And there were words like that. There's prayers. There's physical presence. There's faith. But whatever you have, and whatever maybe people around you have, be sure and tell them. So that's our application this week is to think about what your piece is and to tell a few others in your community, in your, in your small group, here at church, tell them maybe what you think their piece is and how God sees them. Let's pray. God um, this is where, this is so exciting. I mean, to live with the manifestation of the Spirit upon our life. God, and to live out like the little peace you've given us, each of us. And to know that you provide and put your Spirit in us and upon us to live that out. Is the most exciting place we can be in our life. God, we want to look to you and see the projects like Nehemiah that you give us that are beyond what we could ever imagine. Sometimes they're right in front of our face and they're so big, but we feel so small. Sometimes they're big visions, God, that we see and we feel passionate about, but we have no idea how it could happen. But God, I just look at these chairs, each one of these chairs and I say, "Let us look to you for more of your spirit, God, and more of your calling that we take that call like James said when you when you push us or when you knock. We'd listen. And we step into it, not because we can do it on our own, but because you can. And God, we pray that the effect of that for the common good would be radical. I pray that in this room, it's like dominoes, God. One at a time. And it just keeps going. Where we're all stepping in and we're all seeing the greater works that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.